Hi and welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyber Reason. Last week, on August 6th, the day before the Black Hat 2019 conference in Las Vegas, we had our very first listeners meet-up of the podcast. It was part of the pre-game pool party that Cyberism did for the event, so we had lots of food and drinks and Malicious Life hats and t-shirts and even Malicious Life sunglasses. As part of the meet-up, I recorded a live episode of the podcast, which I'll play for you shortly. If you're a new listener to our podcast, then I think it's important to know that this episode is not a typical episode of Malicious Life. This being a live recording, you'll probably hear some background noises and such, while most episodes are usually recorded in the studio, where naturally we have a better recording environment and better sound design in general. I'm the kind of person that believes in the importance of great production value, so while this episode has basically the same type and quality of content we usually have in Malicious Life, If you're a first-time listener and wish to enjoy the full experience of Malicious Life, feel free to check any of our previous episodes. So here it is, a live recording of Malicious Life in Black Hat 2019. I'll see you again on the other side of the talk. Enjoy the episode. So... Thank you all for coming. Uh, for the rest of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. My name is Ran Levy. Obviously, I'm from Israel. I'm a software developer, electrical engineer by trade. About 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I started a podcast in Israel about history and science and technology. I'm also an author uh, on these topics, published three books, and it became the most successful podcast in Israel after a time. Yes, uh, thankfully, it still is the most successful podcast in Israel. And then about three years ago, I started Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism, which is a podcast about the history and the present and, and the future of cybersecurity. Lots of interesting stories. Uh, if you've never listened to it, hopefully this episode might raise your interest. So I'm going to start now. And... This live episode will be about ad blockers and on the question of are ad blockers malicious? Now, some of you might now be asking yourselves, what is he talking about? Ad blockers being malicious. How can ad blockers be malicious? It doesn't make sense. Actually, Eliad, the show's, the show's producer, asked me the same question when I brought up the subject. He said, what? Ad blockers malicious? Hopefully, by the end of the, of the recording, the, 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 the talk that I'll give, you'll understand why. So, in Malicious Life, every episode deals with, you know, interesting malware analysis stories from the history of cybersecurity, lots of high-tech and software engineering, etc. But also, we always go by the ancient paradigm of every good story since this, you know, the dawn of time. There's always the good guys, there's always the bad guys, always some sort of a conflict between them, and then hopefully the good guys win. Not, of it, not every time, but hopefully. But the topic in which, um, about which I'm going to talk today, ad blockers, kind of uh, makes it hard to distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys. 
when you're talking about ad blockers, as we'll see, it's not so easy sometimes to draw the line between what is a malicious software and what is a legitimate software, sometimes an even uh, ho helpful software to the users. Why is that? Let's see. So the hero of this episode's story is Adblock, a Firefox extension created in 2002. It was created in 2002 as a Firefox extension by a Danish developer named Hendrik Asted. Hendrik was a student back then and he kind of wanted to play around with the new idea of browser extensions, so he thought about ad blocking and uh, created that ex extension. Now, ads in the early 2000s were rather innocent relative to ads today, right? I mean, back then we didn't have uh, ads tracking you around on the internet, not too many pop-ups and stuff. But basically, ads were static banners, images. So they were not too obnoxious. But even then, some ads were so annoying to users that they wanted them blocked. So Adblock became pretty successful. But it also had two major flaws. The first flaw being that Adblocker, although it hid the ads from the users, it didn't actually block the requests for the ads. So it downloaded the images to the user's computers and only then it hid them. And it's, it's wasteful. I mean, it's, it wastes bandwidth. Uh, and back then, many people had a data cap and it cost them money. And there's no real sense in downloading something you're not going to show the user. And of course, it's also, it hurts your performance. Uh, some uh, some uh, survey that I came across in my research said that roughly today, roughly 25% of the data downloaded in a typical browsing session is ads. 25%, that's quite a lot. And uh, that was one flaw that Adblock had. It downloaded all these ads to the computer. The second flaw was that it there was, was not a good user experience. Uh, most of the time, the, the users, when they downloaded the extension, they, they had to manually block ads and they had to manually uh, configure the program. And it took time for the software to start actually blocking ads. And you had to know what you were doing to start block ads. So it became a bit of a challenge for ordinary users. So these were two uh, not so um, positive uh, flaws in the program. And in 2003, there was a German developer called uh, Vladimir Palant, who was uh, an early adapter, early user of Adblock, and he noticed these two flaws, and he had ideas on how to fix them. And since Adblock was open source, and Palant was a supporter of, Ad of uh, open source, he wanted to help Henrik implement fixes for these flaws. So he sent Henrik a mail and suggested uh, how to fix these flaws and then he for his surprise he discovered that by 2003 Henrik was no longer the maintainer of Adblock because he was now he graduated from university and he kind of uh, went his own way full-time job so he transferred the ownership of Adblock to another developer called Roo and Roo and Palant didn't see eye to eye and on how to actually implement these features in Adblock so after a year or so of trying to convince Root how to change Adblock, Palant ultimately gave up and he actually rewrote Adblock from the beginning and named it Adblock Plus, which, which is still 
the largest uh, ad blocker today. And Adblock Plus, as it was a rewrite of Adblock, implemented these two fixes. I mean, first of all, it blocked ads from downloading from the beginning. That's one. And the second was that it came pre-configured with blacklists and filters so that uh, the user experience was much better. You no longer had to manually configure the software and it started blocking ads right out of the box. So it was a better user experience. So Adblock Plus became successful. Within only 10 months, it was already the most successful Firefox extension. And in 2007, PC World Magazine selected it to be one of the best 100 software products of 2007, which was a big success. But this success came with a price. And the price was that up till then, publishers and advertisers didn't notice that much ad blocking. I mean, ad blocking was a thing, but it was marginal because not many users were using ad blockers. But because Adblock Plus was so successful and now had a few couple of hundred thousands of users, it began to be noticed by publishers. And so and a debate began and, you know, in blog posts and forums about ad blockers in general. And many publishers tried to plea with their users, please don't block ads. It's ruining our business. It cuts our revenue. So uh, it was a real thing. And for example, there, Ken Fisher, who is the founder of uh, a famous uh, technical blog called Ars Technica, still famous to this today, he wrote a very emotional piece about how uh, ad blockers are devastating to the websites we love and we read. Specifically, ironically, tech websites and gaming websites, because users, readers of these websites are more tech savvy and so they are adopters of ad blockers, early adapters. And for example, a website such as Destructoid, a gaming website, up to 40% of its users are blocking ads on the website, which means that there's a significant hit to the revenue of that website. So they pleaded with the users, don't use ad blockers. And it is a problem, obviously. But Palant and many others argued that users have right to. They have the right for a better browsing experience. If, and if you're using harmful, obnoxious, annoying ads, uh, they are just exercising their right to give you, to, to give themselves better browsing uh, experience. And we already mentioned the costs in bandwidth and, and, and performance of the website. And there's also the question of privacy with tracking across websites. And of course, many, many ads are actually a security, security vulnerability. Because even back then, many ads were actually handled by third-party ad networks. And when these networks were hacked, you started, the users were starting to get uh, you know, malicious scripts pushed to, to their browsers, even on legitimate websites. So it was a problem. But uh, as Palant said, I mean, this is the, the user's right to, to bring themselves a better, to give themselves better browsing experience. And because of that, they are using ad blockers just as tools for their decision how to have a better user experience. But there is actually a problem with that last argument, and it's specifically because of Adblock Plus. Because if you remember, I said that Adblock Plus implemented blacklists and filters that actually took the decision away from the user on which ads to block and which ads not to block, 
And now Vladimir Palant was the actual man who was deciding which ads to block and which not to block, which websites will be hurt and which will not. And this gave Palant lots and lots of power, power to decide who's going to be hurt from ad blocking and who's not. So it's no longer the individual users who are making their choices, but actually the software is making the decision for them. Still, it's, it's a valid argument, but still Palant argued that ad blocking is only a step towards a much larger vision of making the web a much better place, a better experience for all of us. So hurting publishers and ad blockers were hurting publishers is just necessary evil. There's nothing we can do about it. So uh, uh, he was successful, and although many publishers were angry that now who's that Vladimir Palant guy and why does he have so much power? They were angry, but still Adblock Plus Pro was successful. Actually, the debate even made Adblock even more successful because now big publications such as the New York Times and whatnot, USA Today, picked up on the debate, wrote pieces about it, and now Adblock Plus got exposure and it rose to tens of millions of users by the early 2010s. So up till now, this, the, it's, the lines are still comparatively clear-cut. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? It's obvious that ad blockers are working to make web, the web a better place. They are hurting publishers, but it's still a legitimate uh, damage in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way towards a better, better web. But uh, in 2010, Palant had already two big problems. By 2010, he was a married man. He had a full-time job. He could no longer afford to uh, work on Adblock Plus full-time. It took too much uh, time off his hands to talk with the community and stuff, and releases starting to get uh, farther and farther apart for the software, so that was a problem. And the other problem, even a major, more major problem, was that uh, as the, the, the software became successful, Palant himself was becoming a better, a bigger, fatter target for lawsuits from publishers and advertisers whose business he was now hurting. And he knew that once the first lawsuit against him hit, he would have to cave in because Adblock Plus had no revenue, didn't bring any revenue. He could not find anybody, anybody at court. So... There was a big problem for him. Luckily for him, in 2010, he met a businessman that helped him raise some money to allow him to uh, uh, work uh, full-time on Adblock Plus for two years. And then sometimes later, sometime later, he met another businessman who actually joined him. They started a company together called IO, I as in E-Y-E and I. And EIO developed Adblock uh, Plus and uh, raised money to further develop the software. So it kind of helped Palant with the day-to-day -day life because now they, uh, they, they enlisted two more developers. He was the CTO of the company. They helped him. And now his day-to-day -day life was rather easier. But the financial pressure only got bigger. Why? Because now you have a company, a commercial company. That company has to have a valid business model to make money. And if you're not making money, that company won't survive. So now he had he had a necessity to find a valid uh, business model. So in 2010, sorry, 2011, Palant and his partner came across a good idea. 
was called an acceptable ads initiative. And what that meant was that basically not all ads are bad. Some ads will, be not, will, be, will not be blocked and will be displayed to the user. And which ads will be blocked and which ads will be displayed to the user? Well, that's, uh, there are two criteria that the ads would have to stand for. The first criteria was that ads that would be displayed to the user would not be hurtful, annoying, obnoxious, all the bad things that we know. That's the first criteria. The second criteria, which is what by far the more problematic one, was that only advertisers who pay I.O. would have their ads displayed. And that's when the shit hit the fan in terms of the, the, the storm, the rage that came later. Why? First of all, were the users. Many users thought that the acceptable ads initiative was selling out. That, no, there, that Palant was now selling out and he was no longer operating towards a better web. And it, it didn't help that Palant tried to explain that, no, not all ads are evil. Uh, advertising is a valid business model. It's even a necessity in, in the internet. But, you know, some people just think that all ads are bad and there's nothing you can do about it. And he couldn't convince them. So they started calling him uh, sellout and they made up names like ad block plus minus, ad block sometimes, you know, these kinds of puns. So there was rage from a big part of the community. And, but there was an even bigger rage from the publishers and advertisers. You know, business rivalries are nothing new. There's always been business rivalries. No friendship, there was not no friendship lost between Palant and publishers even prior to that. But the acceptable ads initiative, it caused real hatred. We're talking about deep emotional hatred towards Palant and I.O. from the publishers and advertisers. So much hatred, just to give you a sense, that sometime later, there was a TechCrunch panel when, where the CEO of I.O. was uh, supposed to be in a panel with the CEO of uh, 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 Internet Advertising Bureau, an online advertising company, and the CEO of the advertising company, he didn't want to even be on the same stage with the, C the CEO of IO. He wasn't even prepared to shake his hand. We're talking about real deep hatred. The minute that uh, Acceptable Ads Initiative was announced, IO was hit with six simultaneous lawsuits from many publishers and advertisers in Germany. They were eventually, they won the cases. But just give you a sense of how the animosity and the hate and the fury and the rage. And we have to ask ourselves, why? What happened? Why the rage? Why the anger? On the surface, it seems that actually acceptable ads goes towards the publishers. It gives, instead of blocking all ads by default, it allows some ads to go through. So why the hatred? Well, the hatred is because what the online advertising CEO uh, noted or asked, added in that same event, he said that what IO is doing is extortion-based business model. Extortion, same word that we use for ransomware. Why extortion? Well, just to give you an analogy. Say, for example, you have, you're in, in the neighborhood you're in and there's a road and the speed limit in that road is like what? 10 miles per hour. It's a very slow drive. 
and the police department enforces that speed limit and if you exceed that speed limit you pay the, the fine and it's a bummer because 10 miles per hour is very slow and it takes time to, you know you want to go home already but there's nothing you can do because the law is a law and you know what ultimately it's for the better we all know it's for the better good it's more safer and there's a there's a reason why you drive slowly okay but then the police department announces that if you pay them ten dollars for example you get to drive 30 miles per hour on that road and that kind of miss starts you thinking wait a minute just a few minutes ago you told us that 10 miles an hour is a safe speed and if you're driving faster than that you're unsafe and now if i'm paying 10 dollars or something like that now 30 miles per hour is is also safe what's what happened so if you describe it this way it's kind of obvious that you could view that police department as being corrupt as being crooked and what makes it even worse is that it's the police department because you know they are supposed to be the agent of good they are supposed to be the good guys and if they are using these tactics which we might call extortion that's even more infuriating i mean if you're if you're if you're lex luther in a comics and you do something like that well you're the villain you're supposed to use these tactics but if it's superman who does these tactics well that's something else completely and actually it started me thinking about my personal position because as i mentioned in the in the beginning besides hosting malicious life i also own own a podcasting network in israel and part of the business model of that business, uh, podcast network is advertising so i rely on advertising as well what would happen if for example a third party a powerful third party say for an example spotify would one day decide that they take the mp3 files that are released to the internet cut them open take out the ads put them back together then show it to the listeners bummer i'm losing my revenue okay but if they're doing it to everybody so be it but now they're saying no no no. if you pay us ten dollars we'll let them listen to your ads what would i feel if that happened i'll tell you what i'll be i'll be furious i'll be mad because what they have the power they're just arbitrarily deciding what ads can be shown what not who, who decided who made them the judge they're actually trying to force me to pay them if i want to survive i would be mad so it's it's very understandable why the publishing industry and the advertisers were mad about what acceptable ads did the io did so now we can understand what the, the 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 problem is and they were mad but there was nothing they could do the publishers there was nothing they could do because actually when you think about it ad blockers are very are in a very very powerful position they are they are the middleman they get to decide what the content not even ads content in general the user will have on their browser and they are a trusted third party by the user so the they have unlimited power in terms of what they can and can't so show to the user and just to give you a sense of how powerful they are even google and amazon the two big giants of the internet 
they couldn't do anything about it. They are now paying IO tens of millions of dollars a year for the, the right to have their ads displayed to the users. So there was nothing they could actually do. And uh, Palant and IO tried very hard to, to show the public and the users that they are not misusing their, uh, their great power. For example, they announced that only big advertisers, those advertisers with 10 million or more ad, ex ad exposures per month, will have to pay to get their ads shown, and smaller advertisers will get a uh, free pass card if they, uh, of course, answer to the acceptable ads uh, standard. And that standard is now being decided upon, not by IO, but by an independent committee that uh, has people from the advertising industry. So they are trying to have some sort of, uh, of, uh, of, of being impartial. But when somebody is that powerful, you can't help but be suspicious. Because, you know, when somebody is so powerful, every decision that they are making has lots and lots of implications. When you encounter that kind of behavior, you can't not be suspicious about this kind of activity. It's a very problematic business model. So, what we have now is actually kind of a very problematic situation. Vladimir Palant, being the, the founder, the co-founder of his company, is trying very hard to show everybody this, that he is still the moral compass of his company. He be, tries, really tries hard to build a company based on transparency and frank and honest conversation be, with the users, with employees, with the management. He really tries to, to have that vision of a better web via the ad blocking. But just a year and a year and a half ago, uh, he, until then he was CDO and he stepped down from his role as CDO. It became too hard for him. So he, now he's just an ordinary developer in the company. So we have to, to, to think, how long is he going to be the moral compass of that company? How long will it be before the businessmen in the company, the business persons in the company, will be the ones calling the shots? What happens then? It is a big power. He himself, Palant himself, publicly said that his position, the, the ad block plus position in the market is so powerful, it's very, very hard not to sell out. And what about the publishers themselves? Where they are in a tough spot because there is no viable alternative to advertisers, to advertisements, sorry, as a valid business model. There are subscription-based websites, but it's mostly only viable for websites with lots of users. Same thing for donations. Many smaller websites can't really live from that revenue model. There is actually one thing that they can do. They can block users who use ad blocks. Some websites do. But that's a problematic strategy because users have alternatives. They can go to a different website to get their content, and many of them actually do. So that that strategy usually backfires after a while. And there is one last thing that they can do, and they are starting more and more to do that, and that's what's called native advertising. Native advertising is a kind of a laundered, uh, laundered term for mixing of editorial content and commercial content, meaning that you get 
past posts and 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 they and, and stuff which includes commercial material embedded in the in the content itself and that solves part of the problem because now ad blockers can't really tell the difference between what's legitimate content and what is an ad but not only the ad blockers can tell the difference the users sometimes can can tell the difference the readers and when they can tell the difference it erodes the the comfort the, the level of confidentiality we have with the website how much we trust how much confidence do we have with the the impartiality of the website as someone who gives us correct information so over the long run native advertising is also very problematic and it probably cause even greater damage to the publishers so to wrap things up we've seen ad blockers over the last 20 years go through a transformation they started as a great idea a great ideal of part of the ideal of making the web a better place providing the users with better browsing experience and for a while they did that just that but when ad blocking became big business and big money the pressure on people actually creating these softwares and and developing them became very big and they started making doing things that are very very problematic in strategies which are very very problematic and if ad blockers would be just for an example if you had an ad blocker that would for example change the home page and the default search engine of of the users without the consent then we would have said nah this is a malware obviously a malware remove it but this is not the case ad blockers are actually doing the user great service they're providing for a better user experience so they are not malware in that sense but looking and on the same program from the angle of publishers and advertisers that's a completely different thing because if you're looking at it from that angle then what they are doing can be classified as extortion same thing as ransomware which is of course very problematic so with every year that goes by the waters are getting murkier and murkier and it's getting much more difficult to distinguish between the good guys the idealists who want to make the, the web a better place and the businessmen who sometimes want to exploit content creators for their own needs to make some money so we started with the question are ad blockers malicious the answer is probably it depends thank you very much for listening to me thank you very much for all those who listen thank you very much <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. That's it for our special live episode of Malicious Life, recorded in Black Hat 2019 in Las Vegas. I have a small correction that I owe to one of our listeners. In the original recording, I mentioned a browser called Brave Browser, which has a built-in ad blocker. I also said that Brave not only blocks web ads, it also replaces them with ads from its own ad network. One of our listeners called me out on that one, saying that in fact Brave does not replace the ads. Well, I checked. 
and he's right. It turns out that although the Brave team did plan to implement ad replacement in a future version of the browser, public and legal pressure made them abandon that feature, at least for now. So thanks to a listener who fact-checked me live during the talk, and thanks CyberReason, and in particular Eliad and Anna from CyberReason, for their wonderful food and beverages, and for making sure that all the listeners who joined us for the meetup had a great time. And of course, thank you, the listeners from all over the world, who showed up to our meetup. It was great to chat with you and shake hands. You'll hear some more interviews and panels that I recorded in Black Hat in the next episodes. As always, the transcripts of this and all previous episodes of Malicious Life are available on our website, malicious.life, and you can find me at at RanLevy on Twitter. Ran, R-A-N, at RanLevy.com, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com, is the email address, and you can also follow at Malicious.life for future updates and new episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at CyberReason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. Music.